Turn your Bibles to the Song of the Psalter, 133, called into community. Psalm 133. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words six years before his imprisonment by the Gestapo. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Even at age 16, Bonhoeffer knew he wanted to study theology and had the opportunity of studying with all the great German theologians, including Karl Barth himself. He was in the United States in 1939. Here's a brief visit. Her friends tried to get him, do not go back to Germany. It will not go well with you. You can be a scholar over here. You can be a teacher over here. You can be a preacher over here. Stay and serve the church in America. We need you too. He was already at odds with Hitler and the Nazi regime. But because of his love for the Christians in Germany, because of his commitment and his courage, he went back. And he was arrested in 1943, as everyone had predicted. On Sunday, April the 8th, 1945, he was in prison leading a church service, preaching a sermon. He finally got finished with his closing prayer when the door burst open and they shouted, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. They could only have one meaning, the gallows. The next day, he was hanged in Flossenburg. You are familiar, perhaps, with Bonhoeffer's seminal work, the, the Cost of Discipleship. Everybody knows that book. But there's another book. It's a smaller book. It's usually sold in pa paperback form. It's all the more intriguing to me. It's entitled Life Together. Now, it's not Scripture, but on my bookshelf is the closest thing to Scripture that is not Scripture. If you've not read Bonhoeffer's Life Together, you can read it in a couple hours. It is a must-read. And the opening words of the very first chapter of life together come from Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. He opens that great book with this great psalm. Indeed, Bonhoeffer was willing to give his life to leave the safety of America, to go back to be with his brothers and sisters in Germany. When Christ called Bonhoeffer, he called him to die for the gospel. Behold, Bonhoeffer says, how good it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Perhaps you've heard someone say, I love the Father, but I, 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 I hate the church. I, I, don't, I don't do good with church. What they're saying is something like this, I, I really like the father of my family, but I don't do so well with my brothers and my sisters, my siblings. The problem for those folks is that having God as your father, if you really want to be God's son or God's daughter, means you automatically have in the faith a lot of brothers and sisters. You automatically, if God is your father, you have to relate to God's people, to the bride of Christ, to the body of Christ, to the church. God does not have any only children, no only sons, no only daughters. 
He never, ever makes private, secret salvation deals with people. It's always called in community. That's part of the salvation deal. Yes, our relationship with God is personal. And yes, our relationship with God is intimate. But our relationship with God is never, ever private. It's always in community. We are a family in Christ. As Eugene Peterson says, the question is never, am I going to be part of church? That's not even a question if you're a believer. The question is, how am I going to live out in my church or my community of faith? How am I going to live in my church or my community of faith? I'm going to be a part if I'm part of God's family. From time to time, we see some children who run away from church they try to pretend they don't have brothers or sisters. Some of you wish you could pretend you didn't have your brothers and sisters at home too, but you do. They pretend as if this family, their family, doesn't exist. Scripture knows nothing of solitary Christianity. People of faith are always, listen, always members of a community. When in the early church, some Christians began to pretend as if they had a father, but they didn't have siblings, there was a pastor who wrote the book of Hebrews who said, do not neglect meeting together like some of you are doing, but encourage one another all the more, especially since you know that Christ is returning. Hebrews 10, 25. So it happened all the way in the early church while the Bible was being written. Some said, I can have a father, but I don't have to have a family. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, stop doing that. Your presence encourages others. The Bible knows absolutely nothing of any religion that is based upon what a person does privately in relationship with God, based upon their own spiritual development or a retreat or a solitude away from the people and the place of God. It is always called to community. Psalm 133 is one of those dog-eared psalms. It's called a song of ascent. It's what they sang as they went up to Jerusalem. If you're going to Jerusalem, you're always going up. They went up to Jerusalem and they sang this song. It wasn't sung individually, but rather this is a community song, a community hymn. They sang it together, how good it is when brothers dwell in unity as they were going up to Jerusalem to worship. It's a group traveling together. They have a common purpose. They have a common goal. They're striving toward worship at the festival. Oh, how good it is when brothers dwell together in unity. We are called in community. We are called into Christ. We are called into church. Your call is not meant for you alone. It's community which you are called. Bonhoeffer writes this, you're not alone even in death. On that last day, you will only be one member of a great congregation of Jesus Christ. If you scorn the fellowship of the brethren, you reject the call of Jesus Christ, and thus your solitude can only be hurtful to you. If you don't like church, you might not like heaven. There, there's no private corners in heaven. We are all, all together. How good it is to be among the brethren. As they march up to Jerusalem, behold, how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. The words remind me of what Paul writes in the book of Romans, Romans 15. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind, 
with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God, Romans 15, 5. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to dwell in unity with your brothers and your sisters. In fact, you could take one approach. There's a lot of approaches to summarizing Scripture. One approach would be it's a story of fighting families. You, you could take that approach. While the very first story of any impact is two brothers who fight and one kills the other. How bad it is when brothers do not dwell in unity. The very first story in the Bible is really one of sibling rivalry. The siblings were competitive and cutthroat and jealous and jaundiced of I. It's not just the boys, ladies. Rachel and Leah, sisters, they fought jealous over who was going to bear Jacob's children. Then there's the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors, and his brothers were jealous, a sibling rivalry. They throw him into to the pit, and they sell him into slavery. See, I'm marching you through the Bible. It's nothing but feuding families, isn't it? And then there's David, and David's brothers. David goes to kind of spy on his brothers and carry them something to eat. And, well, there's discord as the tattletale goes off to war. And tonight we begin a study in our worship tonight on the book of James. And I'm going to show you in the book of James that Jesus and his brothers are amongst the fighting families in the Bible. In fact, his brothers try to take him away. At first they think he is a lunatic. They think he is crazy because he thinks he's the Messiah. And in fact, there's another occasion in the Gospel of John. We'll look at it tonight when they tell him, you go up to Jerusalem. They're trying to get him arrested. They're trying to push the envelope to end his Messiahship. But it changes. That'll be tonight. Kids are so full of themselves. Brothers and sisters are not allies but competitors. And sometimes living together like brothers means squabbles and angry arguments and fights. Living together. How good it is when brothers and sisters in Christ live in unity. Not always agreeing necessarily, but living in unity nonetheless. With one voice of praise, joining our hearts and voices together, praising God. In fact, I can make the argument that the people of God are by definition a gathered people. That's true. The book of Zechariah 10.8 says, I will gather them for I have redeemed them. God always gathers those that he redeems. Or think about John eleven fifty two, where Jesus, it said, Jesus died that he should gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Heaven's going to be a gathered place. Or Matthew 24, 31, the angels of God shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Matthew 24, 31, whether it's Zechariah or the gospel of John, the gospel of Matthew, Old Testament, New Testament, past or future, God's people are always everywhere a gathered people meeting together to worship. We come together to, to worship today. What it really is, it's an anticipation of that last day. Our worship is a foreshadowing of the fellowship and the great worship that will happen in heaven. We are gathering today as a, a prophecy of the gathering that will happen in heaven. How good it is when God's children gather in unity. But the world's broken, isn't it? 
We're all putting up fences and walls. They're symbols of our age. The walls, just the fences, just get higher and higher, and the code keeps changing. And, well, found a story about a gentleman by the name of James Gallagher and Ronald Volpe. They were childhood best friends. In fact, they were such good friends, they grew up and, and built houses right beside each other. They bought lots beside each other. They were so happy to be neighbors. And Gallagher planted a hedge on his side of the boundary line of the two, two lots. But in 1992, Volpe trimmed the hedge without Gallagher's permission. An argument followed, and the two friends ceased speaking to each other altogether. They stopped speaking. They stopped being friends. Well, it happened again two years later. Volpe took the shears to Gallagher's hedges, and this time he shot and killed his lifelong best friend. Forty years in prison. Being neighbors, living together. I found another story about a fence. A man put up a fence. He put it up one foot within his property line. I'm not a fence expert, but that's a good idea. That way you're safe, you're sure on your property. And the next-door neighbor got mad because he put the ugly side to face her house. Well, that's what I do. That's what you do if you want to build on my side. So he had the pretty side. She had the support side, right? It really made her mad. She pitched a big fit and complained and tried to call the, the newspaper about it, make a big deal about it. And so, well, the gentleman was at the flea market, and he saw these beautiful pink flamingos. Maybe you've seen those little plastic characters. And he bought a dozen of those pink flamingos, and he turned them backwards facing his property with the tail sticking over the fence, and then dropped a little white paint under each of the flamingos <laughs> along the property line. And she marched to the sheriff and showed a picture, and he got so tickled he couldn't even go and make the arrest. <laughs> we'll go to any ends, won't we? A flamingo's hiney. How good it is when God's people are not broken, are not putting up fences, but are dwelling together in unity. There are two pictures of what it means to be in unity here. Look at verse 2. It's like precious oil upon the beard, upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. Now, what does all that mean? How is dwelling in unity like oil on Aaron's head or his beard or his robe? In your mind, go back to Exodus 29. The instructions are given there for the ordination of Aaron and the others into the priesthood. After the sacrifices were prepared, Aaron was dressed in his priestly vestments, and the direction was given, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head, pour it on his head, and you shall ordain thus Aaron and his sons, Exodus 29, 7 and 9. All throughout Scripture is a sign of God's presence, is a sign, think about David, of the symbol, the Spirit of God. This anointing oil makes Aaron and his sons the priests of the community. Living together means that we let the oil, the presence of God, run down our head, through our face, onto our shoulders. It means that I see you as a priest and you see me as a priest. That's a good Baptist doctrine. The priesthood of believers that we're all, when we dwell in unity, there's no distinction. We're all anointed with the Spirit and we are all part of the priest of God. Now, it's not what we are in ourselves. It's not what I am in myself or who you are in yourself. That's not the basis of our community and relationship in this church. What determines our brotherhood and our sisterhood is what Christ has done for both of us. 
what Christ has done for you and what Christ has done for me. That's what changes our relationship. We are set apart as God's children. We are set apart like Aaron is by the oil on his head and his beard and his shoulders. We are anointed, David says here in this psalm, to serve one another. We are the conduit for each other of the mysteries of God. To each other we speak God's word. To each other we need to be the proclaimer of the word of God. How good it is when God's children dwell together in unity, the anointing all of Aaron on the head, the beard, the shoulders, the spirit and scripture with which we're each anointed is a spirit of unity. Here's a, a second image of the unity as they go up singing to Jerusalem, verse 3. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Now Hermon there is the highest point in that part of the world, rising to over 9,000 feet. The dew is heavy at that altitude. When you awake in the morning, you are drenched the dew communicates a sense of freshness, a sense of growth, a sense of promise, moisture. Part of what it means to be in the body of Christ is to have rising expectations of each other. We must refuse, absolutely refuse to label one another as one thing or the other. We must refuse to predict each other's behavior. We must see each person in our church family as unique and led by the Spirit of God. And how can we presume to make conclusions about each other? How do we pretend to know each other's place in this community or each other's worth? I've tried that before. I'm wrong most of the time. The do says we should have a fresh expectation of the newness of each other. And even when we sin... That misunderstanding is a burden on our life as a community, is it not? But the sinning brother, the sinning sister, after all, he's still a brother and she's still a sister. And will not his sin or her sin be a constant occasion of the joy in my life and the joy in your life and the sinning brother's life that we all, none of us make it by our own merits or our own deeds, but rather we all live bathed in the very grace of God. We all live under one word, forgiveness. And yet we realize now, even before we decide to sin, that anything we might do is not just a private sin. There's no such thing. Our sin affects our family, affects our church family, affects the whole community. Have you heard of the butterfly effect of which scientists now speak? It's the belief that the flapping of the wings of a little butterfly in Japan may one day contribute to be part of a hurricane in America. That everything is linked, there are, is linked together. There are no individual actions or reactions. That we're all related together, the whole globe. So it is with the people of God. We are members of one body. When you hurt, I hurt. When you rejoice, I rejoice. And we see each other in grace. Every one of us serves the whole body of Christ. And either we bring help or destruction to this body based upon our decisions. There was one particular gentleman one time who was thinking about joining our fellowship and 
we talked and I answered his questions. He thought about it back and forth and he was so glad that we would receive him to be a member. And he says, Pastor, if I decide to join, it is my hope, it is my prayer that I would never bring reproach upon the fellowship that has invited me to be part of the family of God. He gets it. We must be like that fresh dew every morning upon the ancient mount. We must be willing to forgive each other, to move forward, be sorrowful for the path that we've caused each other, and allow each other to grow in the grace of Christ. We are all partakers of the undeserved grace of Christ. We all have to put on our rose-colored glasses when we see each other. It was a June month. The Boston Globe gave an account about an unusual wedding banquet. Accompanied by her fiancé, the woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston, and she was picking out everything for a wedding. The two of them poured over the menu to pick out exactly what they'd want to treat their guests to. They made selections. You could pick different plates and different china, different settings, the silverware. They went through a book, and they pointed to flower arrangements. They want this one at the head table and this one at each table. They went through the whole thing, and, well, the bill came for their reception to $21,000. They had to leave a check for half of it. Half of it served as a down payment. And then they went through those books you go through and try to pick out your invitations, and they did that. You remember doing that. Why do we do all that? Go through those books and pick out those invitations, and they picked the ones that were just so. And they, they addressed all the invitations, and they sent them out. And at the exact day that the invitations were to hit everybody's mailbox, the groom said, I'm just not sure. This is a big decision. We need to think about this. <laughs> you'd think you'd think about it before then, fella. But it's, uh, I, I, I think we need a little more time. I, 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 th I, I, I think we need a little more space. Well, his angered fiance, embarrassed, went back to the Hyatt in downtown Boston, canceled the banquet. The manager could not have been more kind. She said, you know, honey, the same thing happened to me. I, I, it's the same. Your story's my story. I, I know exactly how you feel. It's awful, isn't it? You feel rejected. You're embarrassed. Why is, why is he shunning you and he wants more time? Why does he need more time? Uh, I, I, know, I know how you feel, but I can't give you money back. That's part of your contract. The only thing you can get back from that first half is $2,100. It's all you can get back. The rest of it, you can either, you got two choices. You can forfeit it, the rest of the money. Or you can go ahead and have the party. But that's your two choices. I'm sorry. I really, really am. It seemed crazy. But the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with the party. Not a wedding banquet, but just a big Boston blowout. Ten years before, this same woman had lived in a homeless shelter. And she had gotten a job. She had saved up a nest egg. And, and she had the notion of using her savings to treat all the folks in the homeless shelters, the down and out of Boston, to a big blowout party downtown. So it was in that June that the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted a party like they had never seen before. Oh, she changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the back out groom. Boneless chicken. <laughs> She sent invitations to all the rescue missions, the homeless shelters, that warm summer night, the people who were used to peeling off pizza left over in a trash can, cold pizza on cardboard. 
They dined instead on chicken cordon bleu. The Hyatt waiters were in tuxedos and served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens, propped up by crutches and aluminum walkers and bag ladies and vagrants and addicts took one night off from the hard life on the sidewalks outside and instead sipped champagne and ate chocolate wedding cake and danced to the big dip band melodies late into the night. Just so is the grace of God fresh Every morning like the dew on the mountain. We must be forgiving to each other. Realizing that there were all beggars invited to the, the big party of God. We're all the homeless. We're all the sinners. We're all completely outdone without God. Not only because of his grace through Christ Jesus. Only because of his grace does he invite us to come to the party. Only because of his grace does he give us a chair at the table of his banquet. How beautiful it is when brothers like you do dwell in unity. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, and 10, But concerning brotherly love, you don't have any need that I write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. But we urge you, brothers, that you should increase even more. We can never come to church, including me, demanding just our way or demanding our will be fulfilled, all because we're focused on ourselves and not on the community, our desires, our wants, and our wishes. How beautiful it is, how good it is, when the brothers and sisters, like you truly do, dwell together in unity. Unity. Family. Gathered. God takes us together as a body, as a family. Let us pray. Oh, God, we thank you for what it means to be part of this family called First Baptist. Thank you for the love that our members have for each other. Thank you for how they serve each other. Thank you for how they realize the importance of gathering together today as a foreshadowing of that great eternal gathering around your throne. God, forgive us when we've judged our brother or sister. Forgive us when we've used harsh eyes and cruel glasses through which to view each other. Give us the view of grace. For that's the way that we want God to see us too. And in his name we pray. Amen.